0: Hi, Thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone that might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again, or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Listen for the Word of God in the reading of... Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Paul writes, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. My rule is not to tell jokes in sermons. Humor, yes, jokes, no. That said, being a sinner saved only by the grace of God, I break the rule, but no more than once a year. And I can't believe I'm going to waste my opportunity this year by repeating a joke told me by Broadus Fitzpatrick. (laughs) You haven't even heard the joke yet. Many of you are rolling your eyes, and I get it. You have grounds. But here it is anyway. There are three types of people in this world. Those who are good at math and those who aren't. <laughs> if you don't like that joke, uh, well, you have to wait till 2020 to hear another one. <laughs> there are three types of people in this world. The first line of that joke was the line in a sermon one of my buddies preached in Montreat just over a week ago. But he wasn't joking. Before he got to those three types, he recalled a painful chapter in his life. He was being interviewed by a search committee for a large evangelical conservative Presbyterian church while he was going through a divorce. He straight out told the committee, I'm a broken man. A member of the search committee had been in the church for at least 60 years. He had lived through two church splits, and the most recent match between church and senior minister had not gone well. He spoke up and said, well, we're a broken church. Maybe it's God's will that we heal together. And the committee eventually called, my friend, and that church, that minister, they shared a long and productive ministry, a chapter of healing and growth. Now, having told that painful chapter in his life, what was interesting about that sermon, what is interesting about our Philippians passage, what is interesting about Paul's theology in general and about his life and witness is that they are all about gratitude. Paul suffered in his life. I mean, he had attacks on his reputation. He was in a shipwreck, multiple imprisonments, some unspecified problem that would not go away that he called a thorn in my flesh. And that was all while he was a Christian. With his conversion, he lost a whole way of seeing and believing that made sense to him. He lived within what he called the law, which, which wasn't just about the guidelines and the rules of the Torah, but was this strong sense of fairness and justice that made sense to him, that worked for him, and which was shared with his community by almost every responsible person that he knew. Yet it ended up that the faith of his broken heart was that of gratitude. He called the faith a gift, something he could not have come up with on his own. When my friend in Montreal talked about three types of people in the world, he knew that he was adding his vote or his voice to the voice of Paul's in speaking of gratitude. But what he did not know was that he was repeating almost exactly, in almost the exact same words, the three points of a sermon by Harry Emerson Fosdick that he had never heard or read that was preached the better part of a century ago in New York City's Riverside Church. Fosdick was the most celebrated preacher of his day. He wrote books that sold in the millions. He was relentlessly positive, believing that the future was in God's hands. But though it looked on the outside that, well, he had good reason to be so positive, he actually had lived through his own painful chapters. He had visited the trenches in France during the First World War, seeing atrocities that would never leave him, those memories. He spent much of his early ministry working in inner city ghettos. And then there was this painful experience. The magnificent Riverside Church was built by John D. Rockefeller just to provide Fosdick a pulpit to preach in. Fosdick, though Baptist, had been the minister of New York's first Presbyterian church, and he embraced biblical criticism early. He rejected fundamentalism, and powerful people like J. Gresham Macon and William Jennings Bryant waged nationwide campaigns to remove him from his church as a heretic nationwide campaigns to remove him from his congregation. Fosdick tried to be reconciliatory, but he would not back down. and Finally, he resigned his pulpit, and that was when Rockefeller built the Riverside Church. Now, Fosdick would preach on the issues of the day from time to time, but most of his sermons were warm and personal because he saw preaching as pastoral counseling on a mass scale. Now, remember, this was in the 1930s. Fosdick wasn't just applying pastoral counseling principles in his sermons. He actually was defining them. Pastoral counseling didn't exist as a term before him. And his sermons and books became textbooks for how this new discipline would be taught and practiced in the church. It's in that counseling spirit that Fosdick preached his three-point sermon. And millions of people have read it, including my father, who has quoted a line from it many times in my life. Maybe you heard him quoted here when he was an interim pastor. The line comes with the third point, so you'll have to wait for it. And I know that you want to hear what Fossick thought were the three types of people, and I'm about to tell them to you, but I'm going to have to do it with this caveat. My caveat is this. There are three types of preachers who preach about three types of people. There are those who really believe that there are three types, and there are those who don't believe it but say that they do because it makes for an easy three-point sermon, and then there are those who know that human beings are complicated people, and in talking about three types, one is really talking about three ways of being that are probably true about each one of us at different times to different degrees. With that caveat in mind, I'll get to it. The first type of person, a first type of person, Spostick says, is the victim. Victims are those who believe, it's a mentality that victims are those who believe that life is supposed to be just, it's supposed to be fair, but it's not. And they find evidence that it's not in how they've been victimized. Now in Paul's thinking, these would be those who feel betrayed by the law because it's just not working for them. It's supposed to work, but it's not working for them, that life is this series of challenges that's aimed at them, and most situations are negative and not their fault, and they deserve sympathy, and some feel they have little power to change things, and then others feel that they have power in the status of being the victim, and it becomes their leverage in debates and policies and actions that have to do with guilt and fault and compensation. Now, Fosdick, in his pastoral view, was speaking to different kinds of people with a victim identity. He was speaking, for instance, to those who have this justice antenna that is bent, bent away from receiving signals about how one might have a personal stake in the injustices and pain of one's own life, but bent toward picking up every signal that shows others that they are in the wrong and they are in the right. But let's not be too judgmental. Some have experienced significant trauma in their lives and they've come by this mentality in a way that's very easy to understand. And then there are others who truly have been so victimized that it's hard to see how they can have any other mentality. Life of slavery, life of poverty so severe that starvation is a real possibility. A life of sustained abuse or living in a war zone and having your neighborhood bombed again because powerful people are playing cruel power games. There are victims in the world. We need to see the victims. The Bible does. It tells of slaves in Egypt uttering cries that only God hears. Some of the Psalms are prayers of victims asking God for deliverance with one ending in despair. Jesus ignores an adoring crowd to help the desperate parent whose child is dying, and he tells a parable to encourage compassion, the parable of a man robbed and beaten and left to die on the side of the road. Some victims truly need the world to change, but they are not usually the ones who can change the world. We need to hear their cry. The second type of persons, Fosdick says, are those who expect to receive as much as they give. Fosdick uses the term quid pro quo, but since that phrase is often used as a legal term, and because that term recalls a disturbing scene in a movie, I wish I had not watched Silence of the Lambs. I'm going to go with I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine phrase. These people assume that the world should be just and fair and that they have a responsibility to help make it so but they also expect an equal return. I'm going to be there for my friends, but my friends need to be there for me. I'll pay my taxes, but I want my fair share of the services. I will be generous with my resources of time and money, but I expect others to be equally generous or they're not pulling their weight. Who can deny that there is a compelling logic to this way of thinking? I mean, even in Paul's view, this transactional way of thinking contained within what he calls the law, has a place in the world. I mean, treaties and trade deals and business relationships, getting things done among friends, families, neighborhoods, communities, and churches without burning out those who are doing the work. Well, it depends on the distribution of responsibilities and resources. Paul sees a place for the law in the world. I mean, he barters for fair prices at the marketplace. He depends on rules being followed but he no longer sees it as having a central place in his life or world when it comes to being a child of God. Paul realizes, you see, that life can be stuck in transaction. Have you seen the movie Lost in Translation? Well, I'm talking about lost in transaction because what parent and adult child relationship that's wonderful has not had their relationship healed by forgiveness? What strong peace Has there ever been that has not been accomplished without forgiveness or debts being forgiven and reconciliation of enemies? And I can tell you from my own experience that every strong family I know, every strong congregation I know has been kept knit together by those who give more than they receive. It is just the way it is. But for Paul, it's more than that. For Paul is not just a practical common sense conclusion that drives him to say and be this third type of person. For Paul it is the gospel itself that pushes him to see a whole different way of seeing and being in this world. He felt claimed. He felt forgiven. He felt saved. He felt loved. For him, there's no possible way to measure or calculate repayment of love and mercy, particularly God's. As Caroline Lewis puts it, relationship with God cannot be dependent on the nearsighted notion that God works within the world's insistence on agreements and bargains, transferences and contingencies, a quid pro quo relationship rather than a relationship made possible by the unmerited, unearned, unwarranted, undeserved love of God. Now, again, let's not be naive. World maintainers are often those who live within this transactional world. We can't get along without them for the life, for the business of life to be done. But the saints who are world changers, Fostick says, live by a whole different logic. They are the ones, he says, that if I could live 1,000 years, I could not possibly repay the debt that I owe. That's the line my father has quoted for longer than I'm alive. If I could live 1,000 years, I would never be able to repay the debt I owe. My father emerged from the depression and the war with this deep sense of life being a wonder and a gift And he emerged from the depression with this gospel conviction that to be able to do something helpful, to be able to do something good in this world is a privilege, for it's just a small way to respond with gratitude for what has been given him. He was grateful for his family and his extended family. There were many struggles, struggles with alcoholism, broken relationships, broken marriages, and yet that family loved him and he thought that they were a gift. And even with the struggles that he had that he's going to talk about here later, the struggles that he had with the congregations he served during the civil rights era, he saw those congregations as gifts to him, people he loved, and they loved him. And he somehow has felt that by grace, it's possible for us to see the world in that way, for others to see the world as he sees it and find some level of service and sacrifice that is joyful. Because it's such a privilege to Will not give back because that's impossible, but express some gratitude for having love in his life. God's love, love of others. My mom shares that same view, but she's not in the habit of quoting Fosdick and talking about it. I think that this third way of looking at the world is a miracle. I mean, it's something to pray for because, because I don't know that we can just decide to be it. But I also think that without these people, without this third type, we're lost. It would be easy to end this sermon with other inspiring stories of figures of history who, despite loss and trouble in their lives, still lived with gratitude and helped change lives around them. There are biblical figures like Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery, and he ended up forgiving his brothers. Because he gave thanks for his circumstances, because within it he found a way to serve. He found a way to save Egyptians and his own family. Or Ruth, who refused to leave her dead husband's mother, even though it meant her facing starvation with her. Or other historical figures like Abraham Lincoln, who lost his child to illness and nearly lost his wife to despair, leading a nation through a civil war and then casting a vision for reconciliation rather than revenge or more personal stories about people I find inspiring, but you don't know, like Pauline Breeding in the first church I served, who was so joyful and who oversaw a massive visitation ministry despite spending most of her adult life in bed because of severe arthritis. But the story that I want to end with is about someone that many of you know or knew and loved. Lil Brown faced more tragedy in her life than I want to describe in this sermon. Her family narrative is a collection of stories of mental illness and substance abuse, and she had to deal with the suicide of a grandson while she herself was dying. And those who knew Lil would tell you that she could worry and that she could be grouchy at times. We saw this especially when she talked about how far we need to go as a country in understanding and effectively dealing with issues of mental health. But Lil, those of you who knew her, you know what I'm saying is true. She had this strong faith in God, and she was a woman of prayer. And she really believed that her family was a gift to her, and the world is a gift, and that it's all in God's hands ultimately. And she talked many times of how she was blessed in life, and how she wished she could do more. She was not one to be taken advantage of. She thought that everyone should do what they could, and she held other people accountable. But for her, service was a joy, and even a way to maintain, this is important, even a way to maintain her own emotional and spiritual and mental health. She was a leader in this church. At her death, Lil left a sizable amount of her state to the second fund making clear that this gift of hers was a gift of gratitude for God's blessings in her life. She wanted the money to fund efforts to help people in desperate times. She did not restrict the money to mental health issues, but did express a wish that if possible, funds would help with that need. And the second fund has made sure that's exactly what has happened. You know, I I myself, I am grateful for God's blessings in my life. But I can't stand here and honestly say that I can fully understand how some who have had to endure far more than I have had to endure can have such a conviction that they cannot repay a debt to God. But if you were to believe them, they would say that their gratitude was a gift that helped them live with hope and live with some joy that saved them from being takers, who Paul condemns later in Philippians, if you want to read it in that same chapter that helped them not give in to despair where they would become victims. I do know this, however that miracle happens, they are world changers. They changed my world and made my world better. May their number increase. God, in your mercy, make it so. Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus